You may be seated this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 49 through 56. And at first glance, it may not seem like these two sections are connected, uh, but I do believe that they are, and in some very important ways. And so I want you to see that and for us to understand uh, what God is teaching us this morning. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to read Luke 9, starting in verse 49, down through 56. You can look at your translation, or it'll be up on the screen as well. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. All right, let's see what we can find here. Now, before we jump straight into the text, let me set this up a little bit for us. As believers in Jesus Christ, you and I live in a world that's filled with two kinds of people. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are other Christians who name the name of Christ And there are those who do not name the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is not always easy for you and I to distinguish, right? We can't always tell that. But from God's perspective, there are only two categories. Those who believe on his son, Jesus Christ, and those who do not. You are in one of those two categories this morning. And so is every other person on our planet. How we understand those two categories and how we interact with those two categories is the Lord's concern in our passage this morning. Because as Christians, we have a tendency to interact with those divergent groups with some predictability. It's not always good, uh, and I think that's why this text is included here, because Jesus is trying to curb that unlikable predictability. God has really had to challenge me over the years um, as I've thought about these tendencies in my own heart, uh, and maybe they're in yours too. And God has had to work in my heart uh, in many ways uh, because of this. And so I'm, I'm, actually, I'm very eager to share this with you this morning because it has so impacted me uh, in my walk uh, with our Lord. Okay, so let's dive into it together, all right? So uh, the first part is in verses 49 to 50. Notice that at the beginning of verse 49, Luke starts with these words, John answered. 
Okay, well, John answered what? Okay, well, if you've been with us for the last little while, you might understand. But if you haven't been with us, that is a throwback to the verses immediately preceding this section. And if you were to glance back, you will recall or you would see that the verses right before this text was Jesus' teaching to his disciples about what greatness means. And Jesus had concluded last time we were together with these words, For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And what we discovered there was that that word least does not refer to class, it does not refer to status, it does not refer to wealth or anything of that nature, but rather the one who is least is the one who puts himself in a place of service, seeing others as more important. Okay, so Jesus has just concluded telling his disciples about what greatness means and what humility means. And so now John is answering according to that. So the apostle John, thinking about that lesson, answers Jesus. Now, this answer that he's given to Jesus, because we cannot read tone uh, necessarily when we read scripture, he's either answering from a position of guilt, like as in, uh, Lord, you told us about greatness. I'm not sure I got this one right, so let me tell you about something that happened. He could be coming from that type of a posture. He's feeling guilty. Or this could be yet another example of John struggling with seeing himself as greater than and needing further correction by the Lord. We don't know exactly sure from which angle he's coming, but at any rate, John relays this situation. And here's what he says in verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, some critics of Scripture outright reject the authenticity of this verse because they will make the claim that exorcisms in the name of Jesus did not occur during Jesus' lifetime. That, that could have only occurred after Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. And so some people reject that verse outright and say, this isn't even part of scripture. This is not inspired. It's an illegitimate insertion. I disagree with that. I think it very much belongs in this text because I believe it's very likely that as people saw Jesus casting out demons in his early ministry, that they came to believe on him. And so they were attempting to do the same thing in his name. Okay, that's what the text says, in his name. That's what John says here. This guy was casting out demons in your name. In other words, he was exercising demons in full accordance with the words and the mind of Jesus. What this man was doing that John saw was authentic. It, it was real. It, it, was, it wasn't some magical formula. It wasn't for personal gain. This was a reality. It really happened 
And it happened for the right reasons. That's not always the case in the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, we read an account of a man, his name was Simon, who was looking for spiritual gifts for the wrong reasons. Here's what Acts 8 says about this guy, Simon. It says, Simon saw the Spirit had been given through the laying on of hands, and so he came and offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to Simon, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. And catch what he says. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, and here he says it again, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So you see what was happening there with Simon. His heart was not right before God. He had evil intentions in his heart. He probably wanted the notoriety of having this gift and to be able to, to conduct this gift. Or maybe he wanted to use that power to make a lot of money. Regardless, we know that Simon wasn't asking for the right reasons. But that was not so with this guy that John encountered. John encountered a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he was a true believer. He was exercising that gift with pure intent. He was freeing people from demonic burden so that they could find freedom and hope in the same gospel that he believed that should have been celebrated by the apostles and that should have been very encouraging to them. But how did John respond? We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Hmm. Fascinating. Let's give John the benefit of the doubt that it's his love for the master that prompted his action. Misguided love, to be sure, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. This, he loved Jesus. So what's the problem here? What, what's John actually demonstrating in his words and in his actions toward this man? It is what we would call tribalism. It's what we would call a narrow exclusivism. It's an excessive intolerance. Because this man, John says, does not follow with us. He's not part of the twelve. John saw him as an outsider. Therefore, he concluded... He cannot be doing this. This cannot possibly be right. He's not one of us. He must stop. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 50, Jesus says to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Whoa, 
That's huge. That should make John and you and me stop in our tracks and consider there may be others who aren't of us that are still in the family of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. One of the tendencies of believers, even today, is to huddle in our little tribe and assume that we are the only ones who get it right. And we take on sometimes this posture of exclusivity toward other believers or sometimes even entire denominations. I remember back when I was, I was either 13 or 14 years old. I don't remember exactly how old I was, um, but I remember asking my mom a question. I can remember exactly where I was sitting in the house that day. I was in the kitchen uh, over near this one. I can just picture it exactly where my mom was standing. And there was this question that was weighing on my mind. I had been recently baptized. I was 13 when I was baptized. And I was just kind of trying to sort out all of this newfound love for the Lord and for his word. And so I asked my mom this question. Mom, how do we know that the Mennonites have it right? It was a legitimate question. I was asking. I genuinely wanted to know. How do we know? How do we know? How can we be sure that the Baptists didn't get it right or the Methodists didn't get it right? How do we know that we're right? And I don't remember exactly how my mom answered that question that day. And I suspect that if I asked her that same question today, she could give me a much more theologically nuanced answer. But I was genuinely distraught over that question. And Jesus gives the answer right here in this verse. The one who is not against you is for you. Here's the deal. Any particular church or denomination may be more or less pure in their confessions and in their doctrine than their counterparts. But any believer who thinks that their group is the only group that God recognizes and blesses is going to be in for a shock when they get to heaven. Because Jesus here is making it abundantly clear that we should reach out a hand of brotherhood to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ and build upon the firm foundation of his infallible word. That's difficult for some people. That's difficult for me sometimes. But the true test is not... Are they part of my church? Are they part of my denomination? The real test is, are they part of Christ's church? Now, we should never compromise on the purity of doctrine, but neither should we assume that we have it all interpreted perfectly. 
we love all those who love our Lord. Now, let me just throw a caution out there, okay? Because as soon as you say that, and as soon as you put that out there, there will be some who will take that to the nth degree, and they will say something like, well, as long as that person says they love the Lord, as long as they say they love Jesus, then all is good. We should just accept that person as a brother or sister in Christ. And I would say, hold up. The Bible does give us some principles to evaluate this in some broad way. We are called to take into account fundamental doctrines of our faith, things which are foundational to our understanding of Jesus Christ. Case in point, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance, catch that there, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now what Paul is saying there is there are some tenets of first importance. In other words, there are certain things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. And Paul claims or names a couple of them there. He says, you have to believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus. You have to believe that he was buried and that he rose again. There are other fundamental doctrines of our faith, things like you have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You can't deny that. You you must submit to the Lordship of Jesus. You, you must believe that he's coming back again. All of those things are of first importance. Those are central truths that are held out in Scripture. You cannot deny those and still call yourself a Christian. But there are lots and lots of other doctrines on which genuine Christians disagree. Should there be infant baptism or should there be adult baptism? Should there be Calvinists or should there be Arminians? Should there be church government by presbytery or should church government be by congregationalism? You can think of all kinds of different areas. Those are all lesser doctrines, but they don't conflict with the greater doctrines. That's why we can lock arms with our Baptist brothers and sisters, our Presbyterians brothers or sisters, our non-denominational brothers and sisters who agree on the first order doctrines and say those are genuine believers. They're not against Christ. They are for Christ. Now, we may believe that they have errors, but guess what? They believe we have errors too. We just don't think that they're heretics. Jesus here is trying to guard John and guard us against excluding outsiders who believe the cardinal tenets of Christianity simply because they're not associated with us. The tent of Christ is wider than that. We are called to bridge the divide with other believers by acknowledging the authenticity of their faith while still engaging in friendly debate over the lesser things. Okay? Some of you may struggle with that. Keep struggling. That's okay. Keep struggling. That's what Jesus is asking you to do. 
right here in this passage. So we bridge the divide with other believers by overcoming tribalism. Okay? Well, what about unbelievers? How should we interact with them? Surely that's different. Well, let's find out. Uh, Look at verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, you need to know that starting with that verse, we are actually starting into an entirely new section in Luke's gospel. Beginning with this verse, Jesus is now setting his face toward Jerusalem. He's heading for Jerusalem. It's the culmination of his ministry. That journey begins here, Luke 9, verse 51, and it goes all the way through Luke 19. This is a long journey, all right? We're going to be in here a long time, right? But notice how Luke words this verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that little phrase there, to be taken up, is actually a noun in the Greek, and it's where we get our English word, assumption or ascension, okay? So, catch Luke's focus. Luke does not say, when the days drew near for him to die. Instead, he says, when the days drew near for his ascension. The ultimate destiny of Jesus is to be taken back to heaven, The road to heaven leads through Golgotha, it leads through Calvary, it leads through an open tomb, but the final exaltation of Jesus is when he returns to his father's side, having completed the mission for which he was sent. Hebrews 12 says it like this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's his final destination? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, but he had that end in mind. That phrase, he set his face, comes straight out of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, it says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Friend, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him when he arrived in Jerusalem. He knew it all. But instead of turning and running, He deliberately initiated the journey to get there out of his overwhelming love for you. He was in complete control of what was getting ready to happen and he carried it out with precision and with courage. Verse 52 says, they're heading down, all right? They're going out and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations, but the people there didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So let me draw this picture. Jesus is in the upper regions of the northern Galilean territory, and he's heading south. He's going down to Jerusalem. 
To get from the north to Jerusalem, he has to pass through this area known as Samaria. The the inhabitants there, the Samaritans, were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were hated intensely uh, by the Jews. The, The roots of that animosity could actually be traced all the way back to 8th century Assyrian conquests. So the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. And when they took over the northern kingdom, what they did was they deported about half of the Jews out all over to other places, and they shoved in their own people into that area. And over time, those Assyrian, those non-Israelite settlers intermarried with the remaining Israelite population, and it led to this mixed ethnic group. And the Jews despised the Samaritans for this, held them out to be sellouts. And and to add to that fuel, the Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem was the place that you go to worship God. Well, that just fueled the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now they had different worshiping places, different ethnicities. So many Jews, when they traveled from the north down through or down to Jerusalem, they wouldn't even pass through Samaria. Religiously intolerant. But sometimes they did go through there. And the historian Josephus tells us that when the Galilean Jews did travel through that region, instead of showing hospitality, the Samaritans there would actually hinder the voyage. They make it hard for them. In fact, there was one event in first in the first century when Samar- some Samaritans in this area massacred killed, murdered these Jewish pilgrims who were coming through. And it created such unrest that Herod Antipas actually lost his job over it. Because the Romans, the Roman government looked at Herod and said, you are incapable of squelching the turmoil, therefore we're going to remove you from your office. So it is shocking, knowing all of that, that Jesus intends to pass through this region. But he does, nonetheless. And so he sends out these messengers ahead of him because, remember, he's traveling with a dozen or so people. There might have actually been more with him at the time. And so if they arrive unexpectedly in some small village, that's going to create quite a strain. And so he sends these messengers up ahead of him. But when these messengers tell the Samaritans who's coming, what do they do? Well, it says they did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Not only was this just general Samaritan hostility, but Luke makes a point to note that the Samaritans lacked an understanding of Jesus' identity. Because he was going to Jerusalem, because of his mission, they rejected him. They didn't just reject the person Jesus, they rejected the Messiah Jesus. They proved themselves to be unbelievers. They were unreceptive to the message. They willfully turned away the master. Well, 
this just enrages James and John. You might recall uh, that Jesus gave these two brothers the nickname Sons of Thunder for good reasons. Uh, here's, here's one of those reasons, because look what they say in verse 54. His disciples, James and John, saw what was happening, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell the fire to come down from heaven and just consume them all? <sighs> if, you, if you're reading from an ESV translation you're going to notice there's a little footnote there at the end of their question. The footnote says, some manuscripts add the words, as Elijah did. In other words, when James and John have this desire, this overwhelming desire to call down fire from heaven, that was not just some random act of vengeance on these Samaritans. They're actually thinking about a historical event. Way back in Second Kings chapter 1, we discover this interesting interaction between Elijah and King Ahaziah. Here's what it says in 2 Kings 1. It says, The king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire came down from God from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Okay, this isn't a random Vengeance, James and John, if you will remember, just saw Elijah on the mountaintop at Jesus' transfiguration. And they remember the judgment of God on the king through Elijah. And so they ask Jesus, is that what you want us to do? Like Elijah did, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these, on these Samaritans for rejecting you? Now understand, friend, there is actually great faith in Jesus in this question. In the face of the direct insult to their master, they felt like they had only one choice. Avenge the honor of the Lord. Their zeal for the Savior, while commendable, grew into judgmentalism, prejudice, and revenge. They were ready to destroy in the name of Jesus. What's the problem with that? Well, let me give you some other verses from Scripture and you will probably understand why there's a problem. John 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 12, verse 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Those are both words from our Lord, by the way. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Paul says, Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Do you notice a trend here? Do you notice a pattern? Jesus's posture toward unbelievers was this. I am here to save them. And James and John, that should be your posture too. Will God judge unbelievers someday? Yeah, he will. At their death or at the second coming of Jesus, he will judge them. But in the meantime, what are you and I to do? We're to bless. We're to repay good for evil. We're to exercise patience. We are to bridge the divide with unbelievers by overcoming our disdain for them. It is easy to look around our world and see all of the evil and see all of the bad. And we saw a lot of it over the last month, didn't we? It's easy to condemn all of those things as evil, as wrong. And we should. Those things are evil and they are wrong. But it is also very easy for us as Christians to forget that it's not our job to call down fire on unbelievers because they are simply acting like unbelievers act. What is our job? To exercise patience, to call for repentance, to speak truth in love, to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's hard to do, isn't it? That is hard to do. We'd like to just be able to call down the judgment of God right now, just... But that's not the heart of God. God will judge them one day, to be sure, But you know what even God says about his judgment? In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In God's perfect justice, he will eventually punish the wicked But he takes no delight in that. He would rather they turn and repent. James and John are taking delight in thinking about the destruction of these wicked Samaritans. And Jesus says, or Jesus acts in verse 55, he turned and he rebuked them. And then he went on to another village. Do you remember what Jesus said to do if the message was rejected? He already told his apostles what to do. Shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next village. That's exactly what he exampled here. So let me ask you, 
We're all believers, I think, or professing believers here at least. How much patience do you have toward unbelievers? Don't stop speaking the truth. I'm not asking you to stop speaking the truth. Always speak the truth in love. But do you speak the truth with a genuine desire that that unbeliever would turn from his wicked way and repent? That's our Lord's heart. Is that yours too? Jesus bridges the gap by overcoming tribalism and overcoming disdain. May that be said of every single one of us as we walk this world on the way to meet our master. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is so helpful. It's easy for us as Christians to think, you know, we got it all right. We're, we're amazing. We were the best. Our churches. It's easy to get in that mindset. Father, help us to see there are many, many believers in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world who love you. Sometimes in different ways. Sometimes in ways that we can debate about. But we know they love you. So help us to lock arms in this common cause to call unbelievers to you. And help us as we encounter unbelievers to overcome that divide like our Lord did and see them with a genuine desire that they would repent. To see them with genuine love. God, we leave the judgment to you. We speak truth. We won't shy away from that. But God, help us to set aside the the desire, that real angst within us just to see the judgment come now and instead to have a genuine pity for those who don't know you yet and are simply acting out of their own selfish heart. And Father, as we walk through this world, that we would be known for light, truth, kindness, consideration, patience, and Father, that you would bless our efforts. We struggle with this sometimes, God. This doesn't come easy at times. So help us to display the attitude that you have toward every person that you've created in your image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.